Greetings, Internet. This is the Circuit Podcast. Welcome back. Ben Baharin is in the wind this week, and while we hunt him down, I'm here with another episode of our Back to Basics series. And as promised, today I'm going to talk about Qualcomm. And I want to frame the Qualcomm story in a way that I think is going to, at first, confuse many of you, which is to say that Qualcomm is not a semiconductor company. As much as it gets compared to peers like AMD and NVIDIA, Marvell, Qualcomm is and always has been different. And this difference manifests itself in a lot of ways. Right? For starters, it's based in San Diego, in Southern California. It's not in Northern California in Silicon Valley. And this has had a pretty profound impact on the company's culture. Right? If you go to any semiconductor company in Silicon Valley today, you're going to find employees from every other semiconductor company in Silicon Valley. At Qualcomm, that's not the case, really. You'll meet a lot of people who have been at Qualcomm their entire careers. Qualcomm's the only large tech company based in San Diego. And while this is changing a lot, uh, it still is felt at the company today. And San Diego remains the center of Qualcomm's universe. Another way it's different is that up until very recently, Qualcomm was a family-run firm. And I don't mean that in the sense that like NVIDIA, it's had one CEO its whole existence. I mean that in a literal sense, the founding CEO, Erwin Jacobs, handed off the CEO reins to his son, Paul, who only left the company in 2019. And today, as far as I know, there aren't any Jacobs family members still at the company, but Jacobs wasn't the only one who did this, right? A lot of the early employees eventually had family members work there as well. And I think this was really important in the early days of the company, when it was sort of the whole world against Qualcomm. Having those sort of tight personal bonds, I think, helped sort of shore up the company against all outsiders, right? But the effects lingered, right? And so uh, to this day, there are some very senior people at Qualcomm who are sons or daughters of early employees. And this did a weird thing to the company's culture, uh, right? In a lot of cases, let's say I report to you, but I don't really care about what you have to say because my career really depends on my connection to somebody else at the company. So there's a lot of a lot of unspoken dotted lines inside Qualcomm's org chart. And again, this is changing, but it still has an impact. And finally, if you think about sort of the core DNA of all the other chip companies, Intel, NVIDIA, like they're all about maximizing compute, right? Jensen Huang, that's, that's, he talks, that's, that's his slogan is accelerated compute. Right? And as much as Qualcomm makes some really good processors today, Compute has always been a means to an end, right? Qualcomm is a digital communications company, a wireless communications company. And I think that's sort of the core of Erwin Jacobs' vision, genius, opportunity, whatever you want to phrase it. What he saw when he started Qualcomm was all of the changes taking place around compute in Northern California in the 70s and 80s. And he found really good ways to apply that to the problems he was working on, which is digital communications. So if we want to talk about the company's history, I should probably start with Claude Shannon, the godfather of information theory and digital communications. But last episode, I started in the 1920s, and I don't want to go that far back again. So instead, I'll start at MIT in the 1950s, where Erwin Jacobs was a student of Claude Shannon. Jacobs would then go on to be a professor and teach at MIT until the mid-60s when he moved to San Diego and became a founding faculty member of the electrical engineering department at UC San Diego. And like many faculty there, he did a fair bit of consulting work on the side with the military. 
right? San Diego is a big Navy town. And so he did a lot of work with, with the Navy and Spay War. Think, you know, satellite communications with ships at sea, things like that. And through this work, he started, he realized that the projects he was working on, the technologies he was working on, had broader commercial applicability. And so in 1968, he and Andrew Viterbi founded a consulting company called Linkabit. And I think it's a good comparison to sort of make between Linkabit and Fairchild, right? Fairchild is sort of the protean Silicon Valley semiconductor company. And just as the founders who came out of that, like the founders of Intel, more noise, those people were the dream team of microprocessor architecture, microprocessor design for their time. The team at Linkabit were the dream team of wireless communications. I mean, Viterbi had already made inc incredible contributions to communications, digital communications. He would go on to make many, many more. I mean, this is, this is really the best of the best of digital communications at the time. Similar to Fairchild, Linkabit had a lot of descendants. If you go on Wikipedia, there's an entry for Fairchildren, which lists the 70 companies or so that were founded by people who had worked at Fairchild, right? Intel, AMD, NVIDIA are all on that list. If you do the same sort of analysis for Linkabit, you'll find it's an even bigger list. It's 80 plus, right? And Qualcomm is by far the best and biggest of those, sort of stands out. But a lot of the names on that list were sort of instrumental, fundamental to constructing the internet in the 1980s and 90s. So Linkabit was an incredibly influential firm, and it did fairly well. They started off consulting, they productized a few things, and then eventually they merged with Microwave Associates, the company we know as Maycom today. Now, Maycom's an interesting company. Maybe someday we'll do an episode on them as well. Uh, it had its own rise and fall, and now seems to be rising again. But ultimately, the, the gulf between Jacobs and San Diego and the rest of the exec team at Maycom in Boston just grew too wide. And so Jacobs left and his team largely went with him. And in 1986, they started a new company, Quality Communications, which they sensibly quickly shortened to Qualcomm. And Qualcomm set out to do exactly what I tell every startup today not to do, which is they began with a technical solution and then went out to find a problem to solve with it. Ultimately, they landed on the, the market for truck tracking, right? They sold a tiny one meter diameter satellite dish that they installed on roof of uh, truck cabs, which had blazingly fast kilobit per second two-way communication speeds. And, you know, joking aside, this was pretty revolutionary stuff for the day. It allowed truck owners to know where their trucks were, how fast they were going, to send two-way messages, send and receive messages from the truck drivers. And it sparked a whole movement to connect all our trucks, right? Today, there's a federal mandate. All trucks have to have some form of digital audit log. And if you talk to old-time truckers, they'll genericize the term. They'll still refer to any company's digital audit log as a, as a Qualcomm or an Omnitrax. And so Omnitrax did fairly well, but only once the company realized that they couldn't just sell parts. And again, another lesson for startups today. Qualcomm began just selling discrete systems. Here, here's a radio. Go at it. But they quickly realized the customers didn't know what to do with it. So they had to build a whole service around it. They set up a network operating center, a NOC, and they basically had a, a proto API or a proto web interface that let customers log on. Once they did that, the service it was the whole service really took off. And Omnitrax did pretty well. 
except the market just isn't that big, right? Omnitrax was never going to be a unicorn, even by 1980 standards. And besides that, the team at Qualcomm, this dream team of, des- of, re- of wireless designers, had already set their sights on a much bigger target, right? The cellular, the cell phones, right? This is the point of the story that dovetails with last episode where we talked about the wireless standards, where at the early days of the standards wars and Qualcomm spent the better part of the 80s evangelizing CDMA to the world. And it's hard for us to appreciate today. Qualcomm's this big, very important, powerful company. But back then, everybody was against them. The operators weren't interested, the regulators, the incumbent equipment vendors, the standards bodies, all hated CDMA. They wanted nothing to do with it. Chief among the problems was that nobody actually believed CDMA would work. So Qualcomm had to spend a lot of time addressing the technical questions. And in 1991, they, they built a bunch of base stations and installed them around their campus in San Diego. And then they drove a shuttle van around the campus doing live CDMA calls. They did a follow-up demonstration in 19, early 1992 to coincide with their heavily oversubscribed IPO. And those demos really proved that CDMA worked, proved that technical problems had been solved. And again, this is largely due to contributions from people like Viterbi. Right? But now that the technical problems were solved, the business model became a much more critical question. How are they going to build the ecosystem around this and commercialize CDMA? And if you go back and you can find a copy of it, that original IPO prospectus, when it talks about business model, it gets a little hand wavy, right? Qualcomm wasn't really clear to it in itself what business it was in at this point. And to really commercialize CDMA, they needed to build out the whole equipment infrastructure, equipment ecosystem. They needed base stations first, and they needed handsets. And if you think about it from the perspective of those companies, Lucent, Motorola, Ericsson, those companies had been around for 50 plus years. They were big companies. They were used to having their way. And here's this tiny little, basically a startup coming out of San Diego of all places that says they have a better approach. Just economically, these companies weren't interested because they had to, to build a CDMA system. They'd have to divert resources from other standards. And they all had their preferred bets at that point. They didn't want to send resources this way. But there's also a cultural problem too, is like nobody believed that Qualcomm would be around, right? You have to, if you're going to propose a standard, are you going to still be here in five years, 10 years to support it? Making matters even worse, Qualcomm had done all the R&D for CDMA. And so they felt that they should get paid for it. So here's this tiny little company telling these big companies that they should pay Qualcomm for the privilege of building their systems. I mean, you can just imagine the, the, the gall that people must have felt about dealing with Qualcomm in those days. And I think this is kind of a defining moment for Qualcomm because they realized that as much as the base station vendors and the handset vendors were their paying customers, they weren't actually making the purchase choice. Right? The purchase choice was being made by the operators. And hands up who was paying attention last time, what do the operators care about? Spectral efficiency, which Qualcomm could offer in, in good quantity. And I think Qualcomm learned how to build its ecosystem around its customers' customers, who were even bigger than the customers. Right? Once the operators were on board, they could then force the hand of everybody else's decisions. Right? So the base station vendors were fairly quick to sign up. They were used to long-term projects. They knew that if they built a system that they could get a purchase order out of it and they could get that return on their investment. They also operate on fairly comfortable gross margins. And so the, the, the royalty that Qualcomm 
could charge them didn't didn't hurt that much. Handset makers, though, were a different story. They operate on a business model very dependent on economies of scale. And even at its peak, CDMA was never more than 20-25% of subscribers. On top of that, they operate on much thinner gross margins, and so Qualcomm's royalty rate really took a bite. <clears throat> but ultimately, it didn't matter, right? Because the operators were making the choice. Handsets were always going to be a problem for Qualcomm, for, CD, for CDMA's entire standalone existence. The handset makers were reluctant to bring out phones. They'd bring them out late. They wouldn't bring their flagship models. Some just would never, ever make CDMA phones. Right? But still, Qualcomm persevered because they had the carriers telling people what to do. In fact, it got so bad for handsets on the handset side that Qualcomm actually entered the CDMA business, the handset business for a period. Right? And if you look back here in my collection of phones, there's a, a Qualcomm handset up there. By the way, this is the point in the stream where I want to remind everybody that in addition to the audio version, we also do a YouTube stream, right? And so for those, for those watching, you can see there's a, a, CD, a Qualcomm phone back there. It's not much to look at. It has kind of a big oval earpiece. It's not a great phone, and it was never a great business for Qualcomm. They always, it always lost money, but it was something they felt they had to do. All right, so now here we are 14 minutes into this podcast. And Qualcomm is just now entering the cell phone business, the semiconductor business, right? right? Because to power all those handsets and all that base, all those base stations, somebody needed to build the chips behind it, and that was going to be Qualcomm. Right? See what I mean? It's a little different, right? We're so far into this, and they're just now getting here. Right? And at this point, Qualcomm's business model is firmly established. To this day, they make a lot of money from selling chips and a lot of money from selling licenses to their IP. So we, we now know from last episode how the rest of the story goes. Qualcomm gets influence in CDMA, gets it to critical mass, builds on that to then become the leading, perhaps dominant force in, this, in the wireless standards and eventually rises to its position it enjoys today. So I want to hit pause on the company narrative and talk a little bit about chips and cell phones. And talking about this is a little complicated because the phones and chips today are very, very different than the, the chips and phones, you know, in 2G days. But common across all of this is what we call a modem or a baseband. This is the critical chip and phones. And, and modem and baseband are technically, they're different. I'm just going to use it interchangeably. Apologies to the, to the engineers out there. The modem is the chip in the phone that speaks to the wireless standards, right? A radio signal comes into the phone. It gets converted from analog radio signal into, into digital signals in the RF chain and then sent up to the, to the baseband, which knows how to authenticate the device, how to start a call, how to, how to roam a call, how to end a call. It handles all of that standards language inside the chip. And so I always think of this as having the strategic high ground in a phone, right? Because the choice of modem then dictates subsequent choices. It narrows your your option space and other components you can choose for the phone because it has to work with the baseband. Somewhat similar, probably even more powerful than the choice of a CPU and a PC. Right. Combine that with the fact that there's this miracle in semiconductors. If you have two chips in a device sitting next to each other on a board, when you shrink those in the next process node, you can combine those two chips into a single chip. That saves space, it saves cost, 
Critically for phones, it saves power. And through these two forces, Qualcomm gradually entered more and more parts of the phone. Right? It entered into power management. It entered into transceivers. Uh, it, it sold products that we don't even talk about today, things like intermediate frequency chips. Right? All of these product areas used to have a dozen or so vendors in them. And over time, Qualcomm entered more and more of these markets and tied them to the baseband, gradually forcing everybody else out. Qualcomm's entry into the, the market had a huge impact on the entire mobile ecosystem. Right? In the early days of 2G, in the late 80s, early 90s, there were four companies that had 90% of the handset market. Ericsson, Nokia, Motorola, Siemens. Those companies all share something, which is they're all vertically integrated. They make handsets, they make base stations, wireless infrastructure, they also designed and often built their own chips. And the thinking at the time was that in, in order to build a phone, you need expertise in wireless engineering. Right? And the only way to afford that very expensive specialized engineering force was to be able to share the cost across both sides of the business, the, the infrastructure and the handsets. Qualcomm upended that as a merchant vendor of silicon, they could go to companies and say, you don't need a wireless engineering team. You just need to know how to do electrical engineering to design an electronic device. We'll handle the wireless part. And this allowed other people to come into the market. The first entrants were the Japanese electronics companies, Panasonic, Toshiba, Kyocera, who ultimately would buy Qualcomm's handset business, uh, Sony eventually. These companies were all selling phones in Japan. But we're in the middle of the standards wars. Japan has its own standard, FOMA. And there's a little bit of a Galapagos effect going on where these companies were all able to sell in Japan, but none of them were big enough to afford the R&D required to sell phones for other standards. Qualcomm came along and said, you don't need that R&D. We provide that in our chip. And so the Japanese started to sell into the CDMA market. Even more important were the Korean companies, LG and of course, Samsung both very capable of making electronics. Now they could get into wireless because they had access to the wireless R&D Qualcomm had done. And so by the time we get to the end of 2G and the early 3G, 3G days, we've gone from five vendors with 90% of the market to a dozen. And we're on a path to hundreds and later a thousand as the market opens up to more and more companies. Right. Beyond the handsets though, this also has a big impact on the chip market. If you look at market share data for modems in 2G days, the market share leader is Texas Instruments because they provided chips to Nokia, who was the market leader in handsets. Under the hood, it turns out that Nokia engineers were actually doing a lot of the heavy lifting when it came to the wireless design. TI was basically doing a custom ASIC for Nokia based on Nokia's designs, much like we see companies like Google and Amazon doing, working with Broadcom to do custom ASICs today. Qualcomm comes into this market, though, and has a merchant solution. They can settle lots of vendors, which means that they can amortize those costs. They can share those costs for R&D across all their customers. By contrast, the leading handset vendors at the time, who all did their own silicon, found that their internal chip divisions were, quickly became subscale. Right? They only had one captive internal customer, which meant that they couldn't afford the the investment needed to keep up with Qualcomm. 
And this was happening across a lot of businesses at the time. And so this is where we start to see the big electronics companies spin off their chip divisions, right? Motorola spins off Freescale. Uh, Ericsson begins a very long, drawn-out process of exiting handsets and chips entirely. Siemens eventually just gives up on wireless, sells base stations, sells the phones, right? And even TI, though, comes under pressure, right? TI is perfectly capable merchant chip vendor, uh, but they're finding that the, the cost of staying competitive in modems is just getting too expensive. And I think it's important to dive into this a little bit because we see a, re- a pattern start to emerge that recurs over time, right? We tend to think of the wireless standards in step increments, right? 2G, 3G, 4G, 5G. But there are actually lots of littler, smaller increments in there, right? 3G starts with UMTS, then goes to HSDPA, then HSUPA, then HSPA, then HSPA+. Each of those increments, think of it as 3.1, 3.2, 3.3 G, whatever. Each of those increments requires a new chip. Now, what starts to happen is Qualcomm is very active in developing the standards. They're doing all the R&D up front in order to influence the wireless standard setting process. But because they've done all that R&D work up front, as soon as the new standard is finalized, they're the first to market with chips for that new version of the standard. And at this time, developing a new chip is expensive. I mean, it's much more expensive today, but back then it was $100 million a year to design a chip, which was a lot of money back then. Since Qualcomm is first to market, they tend to enjoy a period of being the only provider of chips on the market. And so they have the pricing power that goes along with their near monopoly status. Right? They're never a really true monopoly in 3G and WCDMA because there are other competitors always trying to be in the market, but they're first, and so they enjoy a period where they have monopoly-like pricing, right? It gets so bad that by the time we get to 4G, Qualcomm is the only solution on the market for almost two years, right? And as a result, they tend to soak up a, a lot of the lifetime profit pools available for that version of the chip, that version of the standard. And so what happens is other companies what starts to happen is Qualcomm comes to market, they have high pricing. Six, nine months, 12 months later, somebody else comes in the market, pricing starts to come down, so there's less economics. The new vendor has spent all this money developing a chip and then quickly finds it's not as good a market as they had hoped. They have to revise all their pricing assumptions. And then just as it gets to market, just as they're starting to talk to customers, the standard moves forward an increment. And boom, you have to go back and redo the chip. And the whole cycle starts over and again. You know, I, I view this a lot like Qualcomm has everybody in a headlock and then, it's, and then it pushes the standard forwards and breaks their neck. I mean, I don't want to be graphic, but it, it is a very, very tough process. And as a result, we start to see more and more competitors leave the market, right? TI exits in 3G, Broadcom exits in 4G, Intel exits in 5G, and lots of other smaller companies fail along the way. The one exception to this, of course, is a tiny little Taiwanese company that makes chips for DVD players called MediaTek. MediaTek looks at this and comes up with an entirely different solution, one that's built around the idea that they don't, they're not going to be first to market. They're not going to try and play this game with Qualcomm. They're perfectly content to come to market late. MediaTek's five, 2G solution is probably five years buff after the, stand, the standard is finalized. Right? Their 3G solution is two or three years late. Their 4G standard is you know, almost two years behind. They're catching up in 5G, they're pretty close, but still, 
they're not in a hurry to get to the new standard. What they offer instead is a low cost version because they have to be able to operate and profitably in a market where sort of big early profits are already gone. Qualcomm's got those. But if they can get into, into the market with a, with a good cost structure for their chip, then they can make decent money. Right? And one of the ways they do that is they don't offer all the features of the new standard. It doesn't do all the bells and whistles. It doesn't necessarily roam into every market. Right? And that, that model actually works pretty well. Right? So, right? And one of the key innovations that MediaTek brought to this market is they took a chapter from Qualcomm's playbook. Right? I'd said before, Qualcomm was successful because they went to companies that, and said, you don't need wireless engineering. MediaTek takes it a step further and says, you don't even need to be able to do electronic engineering. You don't have to design an electronic device. We'll give you a reference, reference design, a blueprint for, for what the board looks like and all the different components that have to go on the phone. You just have to be able to put chips onto a board, which is something that lots of companies in China could do. Right? And so I think it's interesting to see the parallels between these two companies where Qualcomm expands the market and Media just, tech, just takes it a step further and expands it even more. Right. And as a result, the, the, the baseband market for mobile phones tends get, ends up getting sandwiched between these two. Qualcomm comes from the top, MediaTek from below. Right? And to this day, that's sort of where we are. There's a status quo of sorts where Qualcomm has all the flagship phones, or most of the flagship phones, right? Pro phones that are priced $600 and up that have to be fully featured, that have to roam everywhere. The two companies tend to compete sort of at the $400 to $600 price range, but anything below $300, $400, Qualcomm leaves alone. MediaTek doesn't touch anything above $600 typically. Qualcomm doesn't really touch anything below $400. They, they fight a little bit in the middle, but the market's pretty evenly divided between the two. And then if you want to go even further, there's Tsinghua Unisoc, the company that used to be known as Spreadtrum, operating below and even further behind MediaTek. And that's the market structure we have today. So now let's, let's get back to the narrative a little bit about where Qualcomm is. Over the last, call it 10, 15 years, Qualcomm went from a startup that nobody trusted to big dominant player in the market. And along the way, they generated a fair amount of ill will. Right? I talked earlier about all those other components and phones that slowly disappeared and got subsumed into Qualcomm parts. There are a lot of competitors in that space who didn't like what Qualcomm was doing. Nobody likes Qualcomm's licensing regime, right? It's been tested dozens of times in courts and in regulators. It's still there, but nobody likes it, right? And so over its history, Qualcomm has generated a lot of ill will. And if you talk to people who've been in the industry a long time, you'll, you'll get a sense of that pretty quickly. Not all of it's fair, but it is real, and I think it's worth pointing out that there are a lot of people who are not big fans of, of the company and have felt that way for a very long time. For the most part, Qualcomm ignores them, right? But, but they did find another problem. As they grew larger, as they matured, as the industry matured, they started to run out of growth, right? Today, pretty much everybody on the planet who's going to own a cell phone owns a cell phone, right? Or two. Right? So there's not a lot of growth there. It's a very slow-growing, GDP-growing market. Most of Qualcomm's revenue come, came, comes from some part of that chain, which is not growing. And years ago, the company management realized that things were slowing, and they started to look for ways to diversify revenue. 
right? Now, like any company, they really had two ways to do that. They could buy or they could build. On the buy, buy side, on the acquisition side, they tend to do best with smaller deals. We talked last time about NXP, but I'm going to argue that doesn't count, right? Where they've been more successful is they've acquired companies like Cambridge Silicon Radio and Atheros, which they bought in 2008, right? CSR brought them Bluetooth and GPS for mobile. Atheros brought them Wi-Fi for mobile, right? Uh, they acquired uh, Flareon uh, right around the, to- the advent of 4G because Flareon had a lot of IP, a lot of patents around OFDM, the core technology of 4G. Most recently, the company's also acquired a software company called Arriver out of Vianeer, an auto parts company. And Arriver is very much the software layer for Qualcomm's automotive ambitions, right? But beyond that, there haven't been a lot of big, notable deals. I guess the only other one that really matters is they acquired Epcos, which is the, the RF component business out of TDK. And all of these deals were done with good intentions. They had clear strategy behind them. I would argue that the integration process of all of them was fairly rocky. It took a good five years to really get TDK, to get Epcos up and running. Uh, it took, uh, Atheros was a really painful process, right? None of the Atheros management team, senior team, stuck around for very long, right? It, it took Qualcomm pretty much a decade to really get that business sort of fully integrated. And today it's a good business. It's the core of their IoT business. Um, but it really was a bumpy path to get there. On the build side, Qualcomm has tried all kinds of things, right? They had an operating system for phones called Brew. They had a streaming TV service called MediaFlow, both of which were interesting product for their day, but both of which got rendered completely obsolete by the advent of the smartphone. They tried to go into batteries. They tried to go into screens. Both of those were failures. Probably the one area where they were most successful was the introduction of the applications processor, right? This is the chip in the phone that runs the software, the applications, the operating system that go, that are part of smartphones today, right? Sort of the CPU of a phone. It's the product we know today as Snapdragon. And unquestionably, Snapdragon has been a huge success. It expanded the market considerably. Qualcomm sells a lot of them to this day. It's a really important part and they've done really well with it. Um, they tried to get into data center. That's an area near and dear to my heart. That one didn't go so well. And so if you look back across this whole track record, all the things they tried to buy and all the things they tried to build, what's very clear is the places that they were most successful were things that were directly attached to cell phones. Snapdragon, RF, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth. Anything sort of beyond that has been a bigger challenge. And I think that's really, that's really where we ended today is with Qualcomm has this very strong position in mobile. We talked about the standards and their incredible importance there. Today, we've seen this, this history of this company that sort of started off as a you know, tiny little company in San Diego and emerged in this big, important central piece of the mobile phone industry. But it's not clear where their growth is going to come from. You know, what's the next act? Automotive looks interesting, but automotive moves really, really slowly. And so I think the company is doing well in mobile. Someday might do well in, in automotive. Uh, they have ambitions in PCs. 
I think that's going to be challenging. But again, even if they do well, it's not that market isn't growing that quickly. And they have a good IoT business, but IoT is so fragmented and so many little projects going on. It's, it's hard to see any really compelling, exciting double-digit growth coming out of that for a long period of time, at least not enough to move the needle of a company as big as Qualcomm. And so that's where I'm going to leave it, uh, a company that has gone from the prototypical startup to great, great success. And now we're just going to wonder, keep an eye out for whatever comes next. Thank you for listening. Click subscribe, click like, tell your friends. Bye.